And welcome to the GMC podcast, the place where you can listen to the weekly word from God and highlights from the team at GMC, Gillespie Memorial Church in Dunfermline, Scotland. Today's podcast brings you the sermon series, Money, the Root of All Evil, or a Necessary Part of Life. This is a five-part series that will be interspersed in our Sunday worship through February to May 2023. It will challenge us all to understand Jesus's and St. Paul's teaching about possessions and money, you know, wealth in general, and how we relate to wealth and what it means to give of ourselves generously for the kingdom of God. In a world where our security is often linked to what we own and possess, the scriptures can reset our assumptions on what matters most in life. So thank you for joining us on this podcast, as we hope you will both be encouraged to respond to God's word and be challenged by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now before the word from God, we will lead you in a time of prayer. The psalmist says, I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Let us pray. Oh, great, glorious God, we praise you this morning for your greatness. Greatness that's seen not in your power to compel us, but in your willingness to be rejected and in your readiness to go on reaching out, drawing to yourself poor, weak, helpless, sinning men and women who have no power or no goodness of their own. Lord, we praise you for your greatness as we've seen it in the humanity of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we've seen it in his compassion, in his zeal for truth, in his readiness to take the consequences of his words and his actions. Oh, we praise you for your greatness as we see it in him dying on that cross and taking life again in his resurrection. And we praise you for your greatness as we see it in him going on, working in our lives today. Oh, may he continue that work until your purpose for us is accomplished and all your children freely responding to your love with their own love. Heavenly Father, we come this morning as members of your family, a family sadly broken and torn apart, and we come to find forgiveness and to rediscover your reconciling love. We come as brothers and sisters of the crucified, the risen Jesus, and we are given confidence to come by his sacrifice and his triumph. So we come as brothers and sisters together to share our joy in faith and our hope for the future. So, Father, please bless us as we come. Please make our worship here and our service in the world living 
and effective signs of your love for humanity. Oh, forgive us, Father, for every hurtful word and every hurtful act by which we've distressed each other. Forgive us for every mockery of another person's disability, for every time we've increased another's burden. Oh, forgive us everything that breaks what should be whole. And Father, please forgive us the disunity of your church the bigotry, the hard-heartedness, the hard-headedness that keeps us apart. Forgive us, Father, for breaking your heart. Please bring us back to love and truth in our Lord Jesus Christ. So, eternal God, we ask you to unite your church in the joy and in the hope of faith, to give it power to mend what's broken, to heal what's hurt, to reconcile neighbor to neighbor in the love of our Lord. Father, bless us this morning as we wait upon you and worship you and listen to you. And Father, where the lost and the lonely are, where your children suffer wrong or are in despair, where hope is absent, where faith is abandoned, where love is strengthened. There, Father, let us be. Let us suffer if we must for the sake of the church and for your glory. So hear our prayers this morning, Father, as we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Following that time of prayer, I hope your heart is prepared and open to receive from God's Word wherever you are today. If you hear anything from our preacher today, from God's Word or the sermon that challenges you and raises questions, or if you want to know more about the Christian faith, about getting to know the Lord Jesus, then please get in touch via our website or through the office. Details are in the show notes. Or maybe you'd like to support GMC financially in our ministry for the kingdom. Again, details can be found through the contact us page of our website, gillespiechurch.org or via our Facebook page. Now, over to our preacher. Today we're uh, doing another one-off in, uh, I say one-off and then I'm going to say in a series, so how can it be a one-off? But uh, there five sermons we're doing about finance, money, wealth. Uh, And today's is number three uh, in that, and it's about shrewd money management. And the reading is from Luke's Gospel. Uh, It's one of Jesus's parables. Uh, It's not an easy parable either. It's from chapter 16, starting at the first verse through to verse uh, 13 is where I'm going to take it to. So hear the word of God. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. 
I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each, of, each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? Interesting question. He's the manager. Shouldn't he know? Anyway, the first one says, 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. Then we jump forward a few days, a week, whenever. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Thank the Lord for the reading of his holy word to his name be praise and glory. Amen. Back in the day, yeah, I'm not that old, but back in the day, when I was a manager at Los Locos, the restaurant, bar and nightclub, uh, before the management buyout, I worked for a wealthy man, a very wealthy man, a multi-millionaire. He owned two nightclubs in London, a hotel in Oxfordshire, among other assets around the world. I was the manager of one of those nightclubs in London in Covent Garden, responsible for its good operation in terms of service to the customers and its financial success. Before I came on board, it had not been previously well run. People had taken advantage of the owner's huge wealth. And in the process, they gained for themselves some of his worldly wealth, making it their own. There's an example. One day, my assistant manager found a box of Jose Cuervo tequila, other brands are available, outside of the stockroom. And he came to me and said, this is weird, I've just found a case of 12 boxes of Cuervo. And it, we couldn't fathom where it had come from, so I said, put it into the stockroom. Shouldn't be left out. What had happened and was unknown to us at the time, the managing director was in town, we knew he was in town, uh, he lived in Texas, but he was in, and he had snuck in and dropped a case out in a corridor of the club. He'd done the same at the Soho venue. Now a case of Cuervo back in the day in terms of retail value, 28 shots per bottle from 12 bottles at £3 a shot, is valued at £1,008 retail. 
So when we next did a stock take a week later, we found ourselves 12 bottles up because we hadn't purchased them. They just appeared. However, at the Soho branch, they showed no surplus. They somehow had skimmed the tills. They had been dishonest in the management of the stock in their control. And what happened? They could no longer manage the store. They lost their jobs, the bar manager and the general manager. They were fired. But for me and my assistant, well, apparently our honesty was one of the reasons we ended up being given the opportunity to buy out the company some two and a half years later. You could say I did okay out of that little test. The honest way won. But in our parable today, it seems that the dishonest way seems to win. We hear Jesus apparently commending the actions of a dishonest manager for his shrewdness. That's why it's a difficult parable to understand. But what is Jesus really saying to his disciples in this parable? The parable is similar to the story I've just told. There's a rich man, a very rich and wealthy man, who has need of a manager to manage his assets. No doubt the manager was well paid for doing that, but he's been negligent in the management of his master's assets. In fact, the term Luke uses when he writes the manager was accused of wasting his possessions is exactly the same word used to describe the prodigal son back in chapter 15, verse 13. And the word used means squandering. He was squandering his master's assets. Clearly, he's wasteful, incompetent. We say he's dishonest. Is he dishonest or is he just incompetent? Clearly, when he says to the guy he calls, which we'll get to in a moment, he says, how much do you owe? He doesn't seem to know. And so there's an Alan Sugar moment. The rich man calls his manager in after hearing reports about poor management. And the decision is clear. The only course of action is, you're fired. Out of the boardroom he goes. But then it's not like that boardroom in The Apprentice at all. There is no walk out of the boardroom into reception. Pick up your case into the elevator, down into the waiting taxi. End of the road, you're fired, that's it. That's not what happens. Here, the rich man wants an account from the manager of the business. In other words, a bit of a business audit. You're being fired, but go and audit what you've done, so I know. Pull the account books together to see what state my business is in and my finances. That is not good business sense. I used to be a business in business. I would have fired the guy and got somebody else to come in and do the audit. You don't leave the person who's mismanaged it to do their own audit. So why is Jesus telling it this way? There must be a reason. As a manager for the rich man, he would have received not only pay, he would have received housing. So by losing his job, he's going to lose where he lives his home. And being sacked would mean likelihood of future employment would be difficult. 
kind of looks bad on your CV when you've squandered your employer's wealth. Who else is going to want to employ you? And then we hear the manager is clearly not a manual worker in kind of American parlance. He's white collar and he doesn't want to do blue collar work. He cannot imagine a future in which he has to do manual work because he's not strong enough. And he doesn't even want to contemplate the worst outcome where he's on the streets, homeless and reliant on begging. Those outcomes are not what the manager wants to see in his future. So he has a plan. He calls his master's debtors and then relieves them of some of that debt. And we hear two examples. The rich man is clearly in the business of loans and debt. And we're not talking small sums here. Not at all. The first bill we hear about the manager deals with is for 800 gallons of olive oil. Do a few stir-fries with that. That is the product of about 150 olive trees. But more significantly in value, it's about 1,000 denarii in those times. Or basically a little over three years' salary for the average wage earner. And what's the manager do? He reduces it by 50%. 400 gallons, 500 denarii, one and a half years' worth of wages, gone like that. The second example is also agricultural. This time, it involves 1,000 bushels of wheat. Now, that's the yield from about 100 acres of land with a cost of between 2,500 and 3,000 denarii. That's eight to nine years of the average salary. And he reduces that debt by 20%. Both significant reductions. How can the manager do it? How can he do that? It, we don't know, but there's two possible options. He's either paid in some form of commission and he's cutting his commission of managing these debts, or... Maybe the manager is clearly lending with interest. And in the Old Testament law of Moses, you should not lend with interest. Maybe he's forcing his master to observe the law and the master can't really complain. He's in a difficult situation because he's breaking the Mosaic law. But whatever the case, it doesn't really matter how he's achieving it, it's what he does. He calls each one of his master's debtors, all of them, and one bill at a time, he is creating obligation to him by the debtors. Notice something else. He's in a hurry. The first one who owed 800 gallons of oil was told to take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 400. Have you ever had somebody trying to sell you something and they're trying to get you to sign on the dotted line? They don't want you to read through the terms and conditions. They want to hurry you along. Folk who are trying to pull a fast one want you to sign quickly. And of course, actually this, wasn't, this was pulling a fast one, but the debtors were benefiting. I'm going to reduce your debt by 50%. <laughs> I'll sit down quickly. Of course I will. It might not be wholly honest, but I'm going to take advantage of it. After all, these debtors were benefiting hugely. 
And then comes the reckoning between the master and his dishonest manager, and he's commended. And that's where you kind of pull yourself up and go, what? He's not commended, of course, for his management abilities. Those who are rubbish, he's found wanting in that department. He's not commended for cancelling some of the debt owed to his master. What he's commended for is acting shrewdly. And that's how our world works. If you think about our world, often it's looking out for ourselves. Isn't that what so many people do? Maybe we do. Secure our futures any way we can. Society is prone to commend conniving and shrewdness of a clever person. You kind of often see it in kind of what people call white-collar crime, fraud and stuff like that. So what is Jesus saying through the parable? Verse 8, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are people of the light. Is Jesus really commending the manager? We might get that the rich man can see his manager's shrewdness and commend it, but Jesus, is he on board with this too? Well, he's actually pointing out this is how the world works. This is how it is. The sons of this age, or the people of this world, operate in a way to secure their own futures. They use the resources honestly, sometimes dishonestly, even the resources of others to secure themselves, have security. It's just how the world works. Self-centered, and Jesus is just recognizing the level of the guile of shrewdness in the world. But who are these sons of this age? The NIV translation I read from says, people of this world. They're sinners. People of the world, not in the kingdom. It's not saying those in the kingdom are not sinners. We all are. But the people of this world are those who are not in the kingdom. Generally, the way of the world, as I've said, is to get ahead with whatever can be got away with in order to be secure, trust in things, in possessions of this world. And that's the point. That is in the world, not the kingdom. The point of reference in the kingdom of heaven is God, not myself. I'm not trying to get ahead. I'm pointing to God. That's what we should be doing. Jesus says that these people of this world, this age, are more shrewd than the people of light, people of the kingdom, Christ followers. So what does he mean? Verse 9. I tell you, use worldly wealth, elsewhere it's translated unrighteous wealth, to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So think about what the shrewd manager's done. He's used his resources at, the, at his hand in the world to secure a future for himself after he has lost his job. He shrewdly used unrighteous wealth to ensure security here in a temporal world. He's making friends, so he has somewhere to live, making an obligation to himself. 
But that is not what Jesus commends to you as followers of Jesus. He reasons from the lesser to the greater, saying you need to be at least as shrewd as the worldly. He's saying the worldly use every means and resource available to secure their temporal, earthly future, here and now. But if you're a follower of the Lord, if you are trusting in a different future, not temporal, a eternal future, then you shouldn't you use every means available now to secure that future in eternity. Make friends for yourself by use of your unrighteous wealth, worldly wealth. Because do you know, it has in and of itself no virtue. Possessions and wealth have no virtue. Because Jesus says it will all be gone. Wealth, money, possessions are worldly. They do not go with you when you die. The first reading I did on money back in February was on the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12. The guy, remember, the one with the abundant harvest? His barns are too small, he knocks them down, builds bigger ones so he can store it, kick back, relax, eat, drink and be merry and all that good stuff. And the next day he dies. He's a fool because his wealth was temporal. So Jesus is saying, use your unrighteous, unvirtuous wealth to gain friends who will welcome you into heaven, into eternal dwellings. Act more shrewdly, in other words, using your possessions to make friends in this life ready for the next. How is the question. How do we do that? By sowing into proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. That's how. The church is not a place closed to a select few. Our doors are open to any who want to come and hear and learn about Jesus Christ. It's why we do Alpha. It's why I'm running the Bible course. It's why I preach. It's why we should share the good news. It's about bringing sinners into the kingdom of God using our resources, your resources, your talents, your gifts. And specifically in this world, here and now, Jesus is talking about your money to build the kingdom, purchasing friends for eternity. It's what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. How do you store up treasure in heaven? How can I take the wealth I have in this world and purchase friends in heaven? The answer is put your money into that which proclaims the gospel here on earth, expands the kingdom reach here on earth by reaching people with the saving message of Jesus, redeeming people from bondage to sin. There's so many ways to do it, so many examples. 
Sponsor a child through compassion so that child will receive education, grounding in the gospel, prayer, medicine, treatment, family support. So into open doors, the charity we support, where our giving supports brothers and sisters across the world who are persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. Give to the Scottish Bible Society, the Bible Society, for their work around the world proclaiming Christ, translating God's word into so many different languages. There are still languages in the world where people do not have God's word in their native tongue. I'm off to a dinner. I, I, I met a guy from Ayrshire. Well, he, he's a pastor down in Ayrshire. I think originally he's from Nigeria. And I've been invited to a dinner of the Langham Partnership, Langham Place in London, the home of, well, John Stott when he was there. But I'm going in May to hear more about the work they do to support and develop biblical resources, cultivate theological leadership, and equip Bible teaching pastors around the world. And I'm going to see and hear about it so I can see how Emma and I can sow into that. And I'll bring news back of it to this church too. And of course, sow financially into your church, your local church, with your money, your wealth, for what we do in this world has eternal consequence. Not just for me, not just sorry for you, for me too. For when I die, hope it's not soon, got plenty more preaching to do. For when I die, I am parted from the stuff of this world. Whatever assets I have, I can't take them with me. We have a will. Kids are getting some of it. Not all of it. Sorry, Alex. There's elements going to charity. All of them, Christian. Whatever assets I have, I cannot take with me. I can take nothing with me. But I hope I will instead see friends who've gone before me that I have encouraged into the kingdom of God. That I can see where I have sowed and invested into others who can preach and teach and evangelize and go on mission to proclaim the kingdom of God. Even if you do not think you have the skills to teach and preach and evangelize, you can sow into those who do. But you may say, if I had more, I'd give more. Really, is that the case? It's not about how much you have, but where you place your trust. That's unfair, you might say. But that's not me talking, it's Jesus. He says in verse 10, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. This isn't about how wealthy we are, how much we have, or how little we have, but it's about who we are. Where your heart priorities are, whether the kingdom of heaven is a priority in your life. If you are faithful, having little or much is irrelevant. And if you are unfaithful, the same applies. It's not how much you have, but your world view that matters. How much you care for the kingdom. It's not about an amount, it's about trust. 
In verse 11, Jesus points out that if you've been untrustworthy in the handling of worldly wealth, how will you be trusted with the true riches, the gospel? He also says how we handle the good news of the kingdom of heaven matters in this world. For we as Christians are trusted to support the proclamation of the good news in this this life because it matters in the next. He also says if you're untrustworthy, untrustworthy in handling someone else's property, as you heard in my story at the beginning, of the management at the other branch of Los Locos, If you're untrustworthy in handling someone else's property, then you will not be trusted with a property of your own. How you handle the little you have or the much you have matters. For guess what? No matter how much you have, it's not yours. Like the steward in this parable, what we have is not ours. You might say, I earned it. I got the paycheck. I did the hours. Or the money in retirement, I worked for this. I earned it. I worked hard. Or I am still working hard. But know this, it may be yours to use, but really, it's all God's. Psalm 104, verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. It's all God's. Let's wrap up with the last verse, that oft-quoted verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's serious. What what our priority is in our life is a serious matter. Think about what God said to Moses on Mount Sinai. Those first words of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am brings us out of bondage through his death and resurrection, the Son. And what he goes on to say, you shall have no other gods before me. There is not anything at all in this world we should put before God. So we cannot serve both wealth and God at the same time because they are not of equal value. I've already said, wealth in itself, possessions, money, property, whatever it is, art, blah, 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 none of it has any virtuous meaning in the world. They are not equal. But that doesn't mean that we're not to enjoy them. We can enjoy God's provision. I'm not saying that either. Paul writes to Timothy, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. That's clear. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. 
1 Timothy 6, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. The love of money is the issue at hand. Not the amount of it we might or might not have. You can be rich without loving money, and you can be poor with a deep desire and love for it. This is all about our heart. It's our worldview, where we see value of what we have and then how we use it. Do you use it for the kingdom of heaven? I changed one of the closing hymns, as is my want and forgot to tell anybody until last night and some this morning. And I've chosen the song we're about to sing, Be Thou My Vision. And I ask you, as we sing it, and when you leave, to ponder on verse 4. I'll read it. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. Heed not your earthly riches, but instead know the true treasure is found in the kingdom of heaven. Father, we thank you that you are almighty, sovereign. You demand our all. Thank you for whatever provisions you have dealt each of us individually, as families, as units. As a church, Father, we thank you for your provision and we give back to you. For we know it is only worldly wealth and all treasure is found in the kingdom here on earth among brothers and sisters in Christ and ultimately in heaven, in the eternity of God our Father. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the Sunday podcast from our team at GMC Dunfermline in Scotland. If you'd like more details about who we are, what we believe, and how we serve, then visit the website at gillespiechurch.org or find us on Facebook, or maybe you can check back some of the videos on our YouTube channel. Just search for Gillespie Memorial Church. All inquiries can be made through the contact us page of our website or by calling the office. Again, details are in the show notes. If you'd like to support our work with a financial offering, then that can be made by clicking the Support Us with Stewardship icon on the homepage of the website. This has been a production of GMC, including the pastors and the tech team. All copyright remains with the producers. Today's episode was edited by Barbara Ann Howey, and the soundtrack is Up to the Mood by Lowtree. Thanks for listening, and God bless.